We'll hear argument next in number 98231, uh, Grupo Mexicano de Desarrollo versus Alliance Bond Fund. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court is being asked today to ratify a significant expansion in the powers of the Federal District Courts to issue preliminary injunctions. This it should not do for two reasons. First, there is no historical or statutory predicate for the issuance of a preliminary injunction to restrain the disposition of the assets of a defendant, which assets are unrelated to the underlying cause of action and are located outside the jurisdiction of the Mr. Meskin, do you mind uh, giving us a little preliminary information here? Um, I'm concerned, basically, with uh, a potential mootness problem. Your suit, uh, your petition, rests, I take it, on, on an, uh, an allegation that your client is entitled to damages by virtue of uh, an improper preliminary injunction. That is correct, Justice O'Connor. And there's a bond outstanding. That is correct. Which could be, the damages could be secured from the bond. But as I understand it, the preliminary injun- injunction has become a final injunction. Is that right? That is correct, Your Honor. And no appeal was taken from that. The — Is that right? That is correct, yeah. Justice okay. O'Connor. Okay. So tell me what's left and uh, why we should be deciding. Uh, the issues that would — that Your Honor has suggested would render this uh, appeal moot arise in cases where the issue to be decided on the merits is the same as the issue to be decided in the preliminary injunction. For example, in Kamenish, which is the case relied on primarily by the respondents, the claim was that the student was entitled to an interpreter under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. The injunction was granted. The case came to this Court before the case had been decided on the merits. But let's assume that the case had uh, come to this Court after the case had been decided on the merits, Clearly, if the, uh, if the injunction had been vacated, the State would have had a remedy, namely the remedy of recouping the amount of money it had paid for the interpreter. That is not so here, because there is no claim in this case that the permanent injunction was improper. There is no claim in this case that the plaintiffs did not have a probability of success on the merits. The claim in this case is as to the power of the Court to issue the preliminary injunction. And on that, you rest on New York law, basically. Right. That under the, no, the, the power of the 
court, the absence of the power of the court to issue a preliminary injunction is true both under traditional principles of equity and also under New York law. What are your damages from uh, uh, what, what, what would you receive if you showed that the preliminary injunction was wrong even though the uh, the final injunction is okay? Uh, Justice Scalia, if I could uh, prevail on proving that and establishing uh, damages, my damages would be the loss to uh, GMD for the inability to restructure its debt, conduct its business, and organize its affairs during the four months of the pendency of the preliminary injunction. Well, but, but it I shouldn't have been doing that anyway. I mean, doesn't the preliminary injunction say that, uh, in, in effect, it would have been wrongful to do that? No. no. The, if absent the preliminary injunction. Uh, not, not the preliminary, the final injunction. Uh, no, the final injunction says that when one has a judgment, one can restrain the assets of the debtor. The very point in this case is that before there is a final judgment, before there is a pr uh, permanent injunction, there is no power in the court to restrain the assets of the debtor unrelated to the underlying. You're, you're talking about a period then just between the issuance of the preliminary injunction and the final injunction. That is correct, Mr. Chairman. And you say that that caused discrete <coughs> demonstrable damages to your client? We would — we have not yet proved but that. I mean, we that's the theory of your case? Yes, Justice Kennedy. The theory behind that is that it may entirely be proper now to enjoin the certain use of those assets. But it would not have been wrong to use those assets for the other purposes for want of which you have sustained damage. That is that correct. At any moment until April 17, 1998, when Judge Martin issued that permanent injunction, GMD was free to do with its assets whatever it wished to do. Mr. Meskin, I thought Judge Martin said, look, I basically want to make sure that if there is, as I think there will be, a judgment for the plaintiff, there's something to realize it against, but I don't want to be rigid about this. Didn't he say uh, that you could come back? He said Group O may seek modification on a showing of some need in order to keep the company going. Given, given that opportunity that he gave you, he didn't say you were immobile. He said if you have good reason to relax the injunction, come tell me and we'll talk about it. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, you are correct. He did give us an opportunity to come and make an application for leave to make expenses, if you will, in the ordinary course of business. But what the company, which was clearly in significant financial straits, where it remains today, wanted to do is affect a restructuring of its debts, not merely to pay its current obligations as they were due, wanted to make, if you will, preferential payments, perhaps. To parties other than this plaintiff. Pardon? Parties other than this plaintiff. Parties other than this plaintiff. So the, what you, you are arguing, essentially, if I understand you, that you wanted to be able to deal with your other creditors so that there would not be, the consequence of that would, there would not be these assets against which the final decision could be realized. I would only quibble with one part of your comment, Justice Ginsburg. We wanted to deal with these, not, these assets not so there would be nothing available, but rather with the effect that there would be nothing available. The purpose was not to eliminate assets for, available for these plaintiffs, but that would have been the effect of the action. With that qualification, I agree with Your Honor's observation. So — but the, the judges, the, we were talking about a three-and-a-half-month period. Is it's that a, a week less than four months, Justice Ginsburg. And you said something about the court has empowered to do this preliminarily, and one of the reasons was you said in New York they wouldn't do it. Suppose New York law were otherwise. Suppose New York 
law says if you make out a very strong case on the merits and also a very strong case that unless there's an injunction during the pendency of the suit, the assets will be gone, we will give you that freeze worldwide. Suppose that were the New York law. Uh, what, what does the federal court do? Right. Uh, there actually have been statutes like that at different times uh, in, in our country. There was a statute in Mississippi in the late 19th century that, uh, that had something of that same content that was before this court in Scott v. Neely. In those Swift v. Tyson days, uh, this court said we're not going to apply the uh, uh, Mississippi state rule. We're going to apply the basic federal equitable rule, which is no injunction shall, prevail, shall, shall be issued. But, now we, but nowadays, Erie. after Erie against Tompkins, my answer to your question would be, if a New York statute afforded this right to the plaintiffs in a diversity action in New York, they would have this right. But you say we don't have to decide that, as, as things are in this case. That is You're correct. First of fortunately all, fortunately spared the, uh, yes. yeah. we, we have the, we have the uh, benefit of, of Judge McLaughlin's uh, insights into what New York law provides. We have an explicit finding by the uh, Court of Appeals as to what New York law is, and New York law does not permit such an injunction. Well, does, does it work the other way around? Does the absence of the uh, state mechanism to do this uh, mean that under Erie the federal court may not do it? No. Yes, yes, Justice Kennedy. I would say that this case in a diversity case is governed by Erie, and for that reason we must look to New York state law. New York state law provides that such an injunction cannot be issued in the New York state courts, and the, the old across-the-street argument applies. We shouldn't be able to but do Even it. if That's the rules explicitly gave the court authority? Uh, not so. Uh, the rules, if, well, uh, if under Hannah, if, if — uh, we, uh, if Rule 65 were amended so as to give the federal courts uh, this authority, then in my view, this would be within the uh, Rules Enabling Act. It would be a proper exercise of uh, congressional or court rulemaking authority, and therefore that would also, if you will, trump state law as uh, as in Hannah the service requirement. But, but you're saying neither, six, neither Rule 64 nor 65 authorized what was done here. That is correct. Rule 65 does not authorize what was done here because Rule 65 is is a uh, is a mechanism, is a cookbook, is a recipe of how to get one. It doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, talk about substantive basis for a preliminary injunction. Cases like a Sim Snowboard in the Ninth Circuit and um, the decision by uh, Justice uh, by Judge Clark in uh, Frankie v. Uh, Wilczek in the Second Circuit suggests, though this Court hasn't decided it, that the question uh, for uh, on whether a preliminary injunction is procedural or substantive under Erie is that it is. Uh, what do you do? Suppose A sues B in New York, damage action. And A learns that B is about to transfer property in New Jersey to a relative, a fraudulent conveyance. Uh, and there won't be enough money around otherwise to satisfy the judgment. That must be somewhat common. I mean, it just occurred before. Uh, a and uh, B are is both without a remedy, the plaintiff in New York? A and B are both in New York and the property is yeah. in New Jersey. Yeah. An action could be commenced in New Jersey and oh. assuming the New Jersey attachment statute. Yes, of course. You detach it and you and get an attachment action in New York, you get one in New right. Jersey. Or in Mexico. Okay. So what we have is a, is a different route. Uh, in New York, of accomplishing the exactly precise same objective. Yes, Justice Breyer, but a route that is not sanctioned by the traditional equity jurisprudence. No, uh, indeed, uh, I guess uh, since fraudulent conveyance is a legal action, in fact, uh, we had, it's not an action in equity. Uh, the, we have an instance where a New York court would indeed permit an injunction uh, uh, to uh, protect a judgment that's you know, all legal. 
all legal. I don't think that the New York courts would issue such an injunction. No, no, but what they do is get to the same result in a different way. Yes, by going to New Jersey and getting an attachment. All right, right. So, in fact, why can't the federal court, uh, although it doesn't have exactly the same legal mechanisms because they're not involved in exactly the same thing, get to precisely the same result, which is, in fact, to attach property abroad to uh, satisfy uh, a likely judgment in a legal action. Well, with regard to attachment, certainly the oh, don't call it attachment. Well, what it does rule is exactly Rule 64 says that you look to state law for attachment. For Rule 65, uh, you don't do it because the court can't do it. It doesn't have the, the courts don't have the power to exercise uh, to issue injunctions with regard to restraining assets. Uh, outside uh, re- uh, restraining assets and actions for money damages. Of course, they do, in fact, have that very power if the underlying action is equitable. Of course. Mr. Miskin, I, I suppose that hanging a guilty person without a trial achieves the same result in a different way, doesn't it? <laughs> that, yes, Justice Scalia. I'm probably not permissible, is it? But, but um, <laughs> uh, in a, certainly in an equitable action, they do have right. that and power, what and that's in, what the, court, the decisions in this Court in Deckard and uh, First right. National City Bank have said. But we accept that. Suppose right. it was, just because this is an odd uh, example, but I think it makes the point, suppose it were an action for a fraudulent conveyance. Uh, if this were an action for a fraudulent conveyance, uh, it would depend on an analysis of the equitable principle of whether or not the uh, plaintiff had a sufficiently uh, connected interest in the object, in the subject of the claim, to justify uh, the, the issuance of an injunction. Very fact-specific. Uh, there are uh, cases — a good example, really, is um, — uh, even in First National City Bank, the question is how attenuated, how close is the relationship between plaintiff's claim and the object in question? I could conceive of a case where that relationship was significantly close, that uh, the plaintiff's interest in the thing to be enjoined would justify the issuance of an injunction. I can think of many cases, routine money damages cases, like actions on a note, for example, as was here, where that connection would not be so close. And so I, Eskan, I, I thought — that the reason for New York's, I mean, New York lets you put your hands on anything that's in New York, that what was behind New York's limitation is the notion that New York lacks the power, until there's a final judgment, to put a freeze on assets outside. And if that's so, if it isn't a question of New York's policy of protecting this debtor from having its assets touched, but New York's uh, notion of its own powerlessness that's at work. Why should that be applicable in the federal court, which doesn't have that powerlessness? Uh, in, it is clear from this court's holding that a state's power to attach assets is limited to assets within its own jurisdiction. So, with regard to attachment, New York could not attach assets outside of the state. And, and I don't want to interrupt your extended answer to the question, but. Uh, these are in, are these intangibles? Are promissory notes intangibles? Well, which notes are we talking about? The, 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 the promissory notes in, in question here. Well, there are the notes that were issued by the defendant and uh, to the plaintiff, and there are also those notes that no, the, Mexican the notes they received from the Mexican government. They have. Oh. They are to receive. They have not yet been received. Right. If, if would the case be different if those notes physically had been in some uh, safe deposit box of the Chase Manhattan Bank in in New York? Uh, the case would have been very different if they had been in a case in a. So the, the, loca- the location of the securities itself is significant. Well, it might be. I, where the it depends, I suppose, on the nature of where it is located. If they were negotiable instruments and they were located in New York, I think under depends the on choice of law theory. 
theory, of, of which there are millions, right? I mean, yes, you Justice can't really give right. a well, short I, answer. I, I might have uh, intervened with yeah, your answer to Justice Ginsburg. Right. I, I would like to get back to that. It, it is an eerie right. question I'm, I'm that I'm you. asking. I, I thought that the eerie assessment isn't just automatic. Well, we have no rule in point, so we look to see whatever the state does. I thought that there was then an examination to determine whether the state has any relevant policy. And it may be that the state has a policy. In fact, most cases it does. But if, and I may not be right about this, if the state is not putting on this kind of freeze because it thinks it can't, rather than because it has made a judgment that it's not a sound thing to do, then why should that apply in the federal court? Uh, with regard to attachment, uh, the power of the New York State's courts is limited. They let's, cannot, not, let's take attachment out of it. But in personam, the authority of the New York State courts is just as broad as the authority of the federal district court. Well, some courts have had a notion that they can't act extraterritorially. With regard to assets outside their jurisdiction. But uh, the, the uh, basis of Judge Martin's ruling was that he had in personam jurisdiction, and this is indeed the basis in part of the First National City Bank holding, in personam jurisdiction over the defendant, and therefore, based on that in personam jurisdiction, could enjoin conduct worldwide. And the Federal District Court is no more powerful than the New York State Supreme Court with respect to that power. Uh, the, this principle in New York State law goes back very, very far. The legislative history uh, is, is not clear as to the origins, except that it stems back from traditional pre-1789 notions of what were the powers of the court in equity that were adopted as part of our uh, the First Judiciary Act when we adopted the equitable power and when we gave to the federal district courts only those powers in equity, which the English courts and chancery well, wait, this, Now you, you seem to be cut loose from what you said earlier. That is, you said New York could have such a preliminary injunction. If New York has such a preliminary injunction, it would apply in the federal courts. That's so it isn't a question of equity would not permit this kind of thing. It's simply a question, did the state do it? And you said Right. No, I was — I'm sorry. I was just answering why I thought New York had the policy. I don't know what the policy of New York State was. I was surmising that it might have flowed from this traditional equitable notion that would have been as obvious to the New York State legislature as to anyone else that courts don't have powers to issue preliminary injunctions to restrain assets to satisfy money judgment before judgment. Suppose, suppose that, this, that this court thought um, that the old rule should be changed, that we have a global economy and uh, uh, debtors uh, are too quickly depriving courts of real jurisdiction. It's, it's wrong to know that the defendant in front of you is secreting assets. And so we want to change the rule. Uh, as the English did in the Moravia case. Justice Kennedy. Um, uh, and assume the Court wanted to do that. Uh, would we have the authority to do it? With the greatest respect and with some trepidation, this Court would not have the power to do that, except perhaps by exercising its authority under the Rules Enabling Act to promulgate rules of civil procedure. But acting as a Court uh, bound by the precedents uh, about what the uh, what Court's uh, of equity can do and guided by the principles of Erie and with reference to New York State law, we, this Court could not do that. Well, you say guided by what courts of equity can do. Suppose we think the old equitable rule is wrong and should be adjusted to the new dynamics of an economy and so forth. Well, uh, first uh, — You may disagree, but we're just making the assumption. 
uh, assets out of state are, are not something new that's a function of the new global economy. Uh, in the sense, of course, of power, I suppose the answer to Your Honor's question is yes, the Court could do that. Um, uh, no one could tell the Court not to do it, but I don't think it would be appropriate exercise of the Court's power for the Court to do it. Perhaps would be a better way to say it. Well, just, just because of the extant equity precedence? Because of — Or because of any other uh, uh, proper constraints on our authority? That and the Erie Doctrine. Well, uh, well could, could one go into a New York court, the Supreme Court of New York, and get an injunction of the sort that was issued here? No, Mr. Chief Justice. And why is that? Uh, it is uh, because the law of New York State makes plain, as Judge McLaughlin described in his opinion below, that injunctions to secure funds for payments of money damages not in an equitable claim are not permitted by the courts of the state of is, is that because it's covered by the attachment? And you, you, if, if the attachment statute sets out certain requirements, you can't beat or you can't kind of go on the side door and get an injunction? Uh, that could be one reason. It is clear that attachments apply to property in state. That really goes back to Justice Ginsburg's question, why New York State doesn't afford this remedy, perhaps because they think attachment is enough, perhaps perhaps because they're guided by the same principles of the Chancery Court that have guided the federal courts up until 1986, when the first of these decisions was made. I say that New York would give this injunction, a permanent injunction. I mean, we have a permanent injunction which you're not challenging. That's correct. And apparently New York, just like the federal court, would give such a permanent injunction after the plaintiff has won the lawsuit. But going back to Justice O'Connor's question, have courts of appeals ever ruled on the validity of a preliminary injunction once the final injunction has been Entered. In a case in which the uh, — I, I do not know the answer to that question, but the — in a case in which the issue raised by the preliminary injunction goes to the power of the court and is not at all dependent upon the merits of the case, then the entire rationale, which is a sensible rationale for not — uh, deciding the preliminary injunction after it's merged with a permanent injunction does not apply. Well, I, I don't see why, you, why your response is, is that narrow. It seems to me that you might have a perfectly good case that the preliminary injunction was improvidently issued, but after a full hearing, a preliminary, a, a, a permanent injunction issued, and you, you don't challenge that. There was enough evidence deliver, developed on the permanent injunction hearing that you don't challenge it. But it seems to me you're still entitled to challenge the preliminary injunction if you suffer damages and there's a bond. Right. I, I would like to adopt uh, your position, Mr. Chief Justice, but I think some of the authorities cited by the respondent would limit our ability to, cover, to recover in such a case if the issue for example, in, uh, if the issue were the same as the issue decided the preliminary injunction. What is the, the judge, for example, deciding the preliminary injunction, there wasn't enough evidence in the record for him to make an appropriate finding of but he guessed, possibility. But he guessed right. But he guessed right, yes, Justice Scalia. Then he's validated, if you will, by the final decision. And I think that's what the cases cited by respondents stand for. And we don't but I, I thought, I thought your, your position, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a great difference from an uh, injunction before we have adjudicated that there is a debtor and a, an injunction after there has been adjudication that the debt is owed. 
Yes. Under New York law, uh, 5222 of the CPLR, which Rule 69 makes applicable in the federal courts, there is an absolute right in the court to enjoin a debtor from uh, parting with any asset of any kind after there's a judgment until the judgment is uh, satisfied. And we, while the initial notice of appeal from the final judgment did contest that because the notice of appeal was filed within a couple of days of the final judgment, when we drafted our uh, brief on the merits for that second appeal, from the final uh, uh, judgment, we withdrew that claim because that injunction was proper and was permitted under New York law, which under Rule 69 is applied in the district court. Did, did you actually look up the I mean, the reason I'm harping on this odd thing? I had well, I'd look it up once. And fraudulent conveyances are legal actions; they're not actions in equity. But a typical uh, case is a case where A sues B in a normal damages action. And then he thinks that B is going to convey to a friend some property, and B is likely to become insolvent. I'd be surprised if, if injunctions weren't issued in that kind of case to prevent a, a real, maybe rarely, but a, to prevent a real danger. I, I believe they are not issued, uh, not? Justice Breyer, because uh, un, because if the action between A and B is unrelated to the answer, yes, it is. It is. Uh, then I believe that it, that is exactly, uh, you know, Lister v. Stubbs was just such a yeah. case, uh, you know. The, the classic situation in which, uh, with the exception of Mississippi in the late 19th century, we don't enjoin fraudulent conveyances, uh, the federal rule up till 1986 was that in that case, as, as unpleasant as it may have been, you have to go to New Jersey to get your injunction, where there can be an attachment of the assets. May I ask you a uh, You're not suggesting that New Jersey is more no. unpleasant than New York? No, no, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Messi, can I ask you a practical How long did the trial take in this case, the trial on the merits in this case take? Uh, the trial, there was a motion for summary judgment. There was and, and how long did it take the judge to decide it? Uh, the, the, uh, there was a period of several weeks of briefing, and I think the matter was sub judice for something on the order of a week. But I'd I was just wondering if the judge, if, if you win and the judge had the same problem all over again, say to me what the trial judge might do is say, let's go to trial tomorrow. Put your evidence in. We'll have a decision on the merits in 15 days. So we would, and then you would, you, and if you lost on the merits, then you would have no, 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 no redress. Right, right, Justice Stevens. And, and that, that point is really, I think, what motivated the trial judge. Uh, he said to me, could I do this after judgment? And I said, uh, yes, Judge Martin, you could do it after judgment. And he said, well, I am sure that the plaintiffs are going to win this case, and if I could do it after judgment, I can do it now. And that tests the principle that we're raising. That really is where the rubber meets the road. But the point is, within the limits of due process, he could have truncated it as far as he wanted to. But for whatever but if period he had truncated it by saying, uh, and he, say he did have the power, and if he truncated the trial, the preliminary injunction hearing, by saying, well, I'm going to rely on this affidavit as enough evidence because I'm convinced what I'm going to do after all the evidence comes in, he could get away with that. If, if he, yeah. within the limits of due process, yeah. if he had accelerated the trial and had yeah. somehow a finding on the merits within a day or two of the, of the original ex-party application, then, this, then the answer is yes. How would that have helped in a world where you can transfer money in five minutes? But, but th that was always that's, — there's nothing new about that, uh, Justice Breyer. No, but I mean, if it's a practical thing we're looking for, if you, if you win this, uh, then in, in, in future cases, uh, as long as there's five minutes' time between the complaint being filed and the trial on the merits, that's the same as if there were ten years' time. That's correct. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no other questions, I'd like to reserve the balance. Very well, Mr. Mescon. Uh, Mr. Days, we'll hear from you.
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I wanted to address some of the issues that were just raised with my opposing counsel on the mootness issue and with respect to the Erie issue as well. Uh, first of all, uh, on the question of the applicability of Kamenisch, we believe that Kamenisch makes very clear that the issue of the uh, ability to sue for damages on the bond is not a matter that can be resolved uh, on an interlocutory appeal of a preliminary injunction. Of course, there is no preliminary injunction in existence at this point. It ceased to exist when it was converted to a permanent injunction but, by but the judge. But here, the theory uh, of the petitioner is, is that the reason any mischief happened was because it was at the um, uh, uh, initial injunction stage. I, I understand that, Justice Kennedy, but I think it, that is what the difference between the preliminary and, and, and the permanent injunction that is the very theory of his case, and, and that just wasn't involved in the case that you cited. That is correct. It's not uh, directly on point in that regard, but I think it can be used for this purpose. Uh, in Kamenish, it is true that there was the question of the uh, ability to recover on the appeal on the injunction bond. And what this Court said was that issue can be resolved after a trial on the merits and final judgment. Uh, there was a, a nexus between those two. Uh, what GMD argues here is that there's no nexus. There's no nexus between the preliminary injunction and the merits issue in this case, and we disagree with that. We think that the permanent injunction was, in fact, just an extension of the preliminary injunction. There is nothing in the record that suggests that the judge relied on any different authority for the permanent injunction than he invoked when he entered the preliminary injunction. But, but th that may be true, Mr. Days, but if, if the petitioner is right, that the authority to issue the preliminary injunction is, is non-existent, whereas the authority to issue the permanent injunction is clear, uh, I would think that would be enough to, to at least give the structure of a claim for damages on the bond. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, with, with respect, this Court has said that where one wants to have those types of issues resolved, they have to be resolved after trial uh, on the merits and, and judgment. Uh, any any well, person who's been but if if if, you, if maybe you need, you need a separate suit on the bond I don't mean to decide that but uh, certainly if if it were decided by this court that the issue of the preliminary injunction in this case were improvident or unauthorized that could be used in the suit on the bond could it not well I think uh, Mr Chief Justice but what the district judge in, in essence found was that the activities of GMD that were preliminarily enjoined were correctly enjoined, and that's what the permanent injunction is all about. Yes, but if, if we decide he was laboring under a misapprehension as to what his authority was to issue a preliminary injunction, then, you know, uh, that, that goes to the merits of this case, certainly, to a certain extent. Then that would certainly be uh, a binding on the parties and a suit on the bond, would it not? Uh, yes, I think that is certainly possible, Mr. Chief Justice, but what it opens up is the ability of any party who's been dissatisfied with a ruling on a preliminary injunction to raise not just the basic propriety of the issuance of the preliminary injunction, namely whether it met the basic requirements of Rule 65, 
but larger issues or even issues as to do with whether there was irreparable harm. But I think this Court has said that those issues simply are inappropriately raised with oh, respect to Day, it wouldn't really, the preliminary injunction. It wouldn't really open up that Pandora's box if, the, if it only applied to cases in which it was contended that there was an absence of power during the interval between the time the preliminary injunction entered and the judgment and the case was entered on the merits. Uh, yes, I, I understand I think that. I it would be limited to that. Yes. Uh, let me just mention one other factor with respect to uh, the uh, bond uh, damage action, and that is that, uh, as was pointed out, I think, by Justice Ginsburg, the district judge here allowed GMD to come in and seek modifications from the preliminary injunction. GMD initially filed such a petition for a motion for modification and withdrew it. So I think that one of the things that's presented here is the highly hypothetical nature of the claim on, on the bond. Well, but look, that, that, that would certainly perhaps be a, a defense to a damage, a partial defense to a damages action, that you had it within your power to correct this situation with, without enduring it. But I, I, I don't think that dis- dispenses with the entire case. Uh, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, let me turn, if I may, to the Erie question. Uh, as we've indicated in our brief, we think that the Erie issue is not properly before this Court. It was not uh, fairly included in the question presented, nor was it pressed or passed on in the lower courts. I think the colloquy between the Court uh, and Mr. Mescon reflect the fact that what uh, GMD is asking this Court to do is the work of the lower court judges, that is, the trial judge and the Court of Appeals. Now, they have pointed to a decision uh, by the Second Circuit in this case in which the Court says all parties agree that this type of relief would not be available under Rule 64 or or New York injunction uh, law. Uh, First of all, that entire discussion uh, in the lower courts was about the relationship between Rule 64 and 65. Erie never came up, and I think one would search in vain to find even the word Erie mentioned in any of the filings uh, in this Court below uh, until this uh, Court got the merits brief from GMD uh, in this case. And secondly, and I know it's somewhat curious that the Court says Rule 64 and the injunction uh, statute, but what it was saying was that under New York law, if one brings an attachment action pursuant to Rule 64, one can also get an injunction in aid of that uh, attachment process. So I think that it is unfair to look at that decision as a pronouncement on what New York law would in fact hold if those courts had been invited to consider Erie and go through the process that uh, you were discussing with Mr. Mescon. Uh, let me turn to the, the basic issue here, though. I think Mr. Mescon has been very direct uh, and, and very candid in saying that uh, there is no historical or s- statutory predicate for what the district judge did here, uh, and indeed that this court has no power to authorize a federal judge to do what uh, Judge Martin did, did here. Uh, I am reminded of a quotation from uh, Justice Holmes in which he said that it is revolting to have no better reason for a rule of law than that sort was laid down in the time of Henry IV. It is still more revolting if the grounds upon which it was laid down have vanished long since, and the rule simply persists from blind imitation of the past. Now, I don't necessarily want to embrace the revolting part of that statement by uh, Mr. Justice Holmes, but I think it does get to the heart of this. What basically GMD is saying is that 
there were cases in the 19th century where parties sought to get freeze orders and were told that they were unable to do that, that the court simply could not provide that type of relief. Scott versus Neely, the Hollins case, and there are other cases that go to the same point. But those were pre-merger cases, and I think that if one thinks about them in terms of their being pre-merger, when courts were faced first, as was true in those cases, with a request for a final judgment that included the freeze order, that is, a freeze order that would take the defendant's property and convert it in a way that would satisfy a money judgment that the plaintiffs were seeking. Mr. Davis, do you think that the merger of law and equity uh, enlarged the the kind of remedies that were available? I think, Mr. Chief Justice, what the merger did was allow a court sitting on both law and equity cases to use remedies that previously would have been available only in a court of equity after there had been some satisfaction of a judgment in, on the law side of the court. But do you, uh, do you think that if a court of equity couldn't have given it before there was a judgment and then you merge law and equity, wouldn't the rules still be the same? You have to, you know, you can get it in the same proceeding. You get a judgment, then you get an injunction, but you don't get an injunction before that. Well, I, I, think, I think that certainly if the law had been clear in that respect, the courts had been very clear that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the merger, no matter what happened to the Seventh Amendment, uh, rights that were always implicated in that type of situation, then we'd have a different different uh, problem. Do you have any cases to the contrary? Do you have any cases where, indeed, uh, um, an injunction of this sort was issued? Uh, we do not have a case that deals specifically well. with this question, but I think that this Court in, in Dairy Queen versus Wood pointed out the kind of uh, time-bound nature of decisions well, like we, Scott versus Neely. But, there have been deadbeat creditors, uh, deadbeat debtors who, who, who are going to uh, try to get rid of their property forever. And now maybe the rule that we have is not a good rule, uh, and, and Henry the Fourth uh, notwithstanding. But uh, the, the issue is, is not whether we can change it, really. The issue is whether this court ought to be the uh, uh, the instrument of change, or, or, or whether. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a fundamental uh, departure from what, uh, what courts have done in the past that if, indeed, we want to give creditors more rights against debtors in this respect, it ought to be a congressional determination. I mean, that's, that's really the only argument here. Uh, Justice Scalia, I think that what Rule 65 does is embody all the principles of equity power, and I don't think those decisions that have been cited by, by GMD stand for the proposition that they would absolutely have been foreclosed after a merger of law and equity. But you don't have a single case. That, uh, I, well, I think I, that the I, fact I, that there haven't been many of these cases arising is reflective of the fact that in most instances we don't have the unique circumstances presented in this case. We have a situation where there is a party that admitted that it was subject to the personal jurisdiction of the court and to the laws of not only New York State but of the federal court's laws, whatever they might apply, it was a situation where there were no assets in the jurisdiction, therefore attachment was unavailable. Bankruptcy was not available because it's a foreign corporation and would not be subject to the bankruptcy laws. And one can go down the list. Under those circumstances, what uh, we believe is the case that if one looks at the nature of equity, the flexibility and the adapting to new circumstances that has always characterized 
the equity power of federal courts that it is not inappropriate for the equity court in 1999 to try to deal with this situation. Are you so saying that we're doing this to supplement the void in the bankruptcy laws? No, I'm simply saying that it goes to the whole question of whether, for example, there's an adequate remedy at law well, or whether there's I, irreparable I would, harm. I, I would have thought that would have been your argument, not mine, not a bad argument, because um, I'll accept uh, that, uh, uh, assuming the assets were, say, in the state of California, Yes. in this case, GMD had its assets, uh, I take it you could have uh, initiated an involuntary bankruptcy proceeding? Yes, that is correct. All right, so then why aren't I correct in suggesting that what you're doing is simply trying to cure a, a, a gap or a void in the bankruptcy laws? Uh, I think it's a very persuasive argument. And, and so e equity simply in. fills in any gap that may result from an absence of a bankruptcy law in Mexico? Well, I, 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 won't, uh, I don't want to go to the point of seeing this as merely a gap-filling procedure. It is a procedure in which a federal court is presented with a party and it is told, as Mr. Mescon has told this court, you are completely powerless, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what can be shown about irreparable harm, the inadequacy of legal remedies, the unavailability of attachment, the unavailability of bankruptcy. But it seems you have that nothing that can be done. That's the, that's the minimum of what you're doing. And you may be even doing more. You may be saying even if they can't go into bankruptcy, you ought to be able to attach a, 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 a putative debtor's uh, assets. And, and that's, a, that's a sweeping change in the law. Well, I don't think it's a sweeping change. I think it merely is a situation where, as this case reflects, all of the tools that would ordinarily be available to a litigant in the courts of this country are not available uh, to the investors in this case because of the circumstances that I've just described. I take it you say that the uh, uh, reason this isn't coming up a lot is obvious. There are attachment statutes. There are lots of other remedies, including bankruptcy, etc. So obviously, but it, it, why isn't it, and you're going to agree with this, what's the objection to it is what I'm looking for. Uh, what is the, the best evidence of what, of what I'm about to say? No, of what I'm about to say, that the best evidence of what would happen after the merger of law and equity is what did happen after the law, merger of law and equity, namely yes. Britain. That is correct. The, no, I but there must Mareva, be some objection to it because, I, I mean, at the moment I am tempted, which you will say, say, well, let's see what happens after law and equity. What did they do? Uh, but but are, are there problems with it carrying that over here? I'm not prepared to say that there would be a wholesale transporting of the Mareva injunction approach to the United States, but I think it does say two important things. One is that the English courts are drawing from the same historical base that our courts are drawing from in terms of the nature of equity court power. And you think we have the same um, uh, freedom in developing uh, new rules of equity as the, uh, as the uh, House of Lords does? I mean, don't forget the Supreme Court of England is the House of Lords. I understand uh, that, uh, and, and, and we have the same we have the same authority to uh, to revise uh, equitable. Well, I, I think what it says is that to the extent that this court has held, and it's held for a number of years, that as long as federal courts are applying principles of equity that were handed to the courts in 1789 in the first Judiciary Act, uh, then they can continue to do that, and they can uh, I just found an old treatise somewhere, so this is why I'll have to look it up, but I, I've, uh, that, that said that basically you could get an injunction 
to prevent a fraudulent conveyance. And probably when I look that up, I'll discover it because you would have had it otherwise. That well, isn't I, really in point or something. But I'm, I'm not sure. What was the reason that the, the courts of equity wouldn't enjoin, say, a fraudulent conveyance, where uh, the, the, uh, the petitioner in equity said, I, I need that injunction in order to protect my uh, sure-to-come judgment in a lawsuit? Yes, sir. What was the Justice reason? Ryan, Did anything uh, other I, than I think the reasons aren't given. They simply were pronounced. If one looks at those cases, first of all, there's no discussion of irreparable harm. There is a clear concern about the problem of depriving a litigant of a jury trial right under the Seventh Amendment. And as Dairy Queen versus Wood says, those issues have been uh, done away with. They're no longer problematic. Now, the Court doesn't go on to say what follows from that, but we think what follows naturally from this is the power that the district court exercised in this particular case. The second point I want to make about Moreva, however, is that uh, the, the courts have been able to apply that principle in a way that has not caused a floodgate to open up. They have used it very uh, carefully and, and cautiously, and we think that under Rule 65 and the demanding standards under Rule 65, there's no reason why federal courts shouldn't do the same. May I ask you to comment on an aspect of the case that I'm just kind of puzzled about? If I understand you correctly, it is unlikely that many of these cases would arise except when a, a foreign uh, debtor is, is in the picture. And if it were true that under the laws of, the, of Mexico, say we have, certain transactions would be permitted that would be contrary to our banks' up rules and, and fraudulent conveyances under our rules, is it clear in your mind that the a district court should be able to enjoin the performance of action of uh, transactions that would be lawful under the law of Mexico, although unlawful here? Well, uh, Justice Stevens, that's obviously an issue that a trial judge, a federal trial judge, would have to consider very carefully. I think that if that judge had power, personal jurisdiction over the defendants before it, that judge could issue an order that would have extraterritorial effect, requiring those defendants to do uh, one thing or another. That's been part of our law for uh, many, many years. But I think what the judge did here is an example of caution under such circumstances. For one thing, he did not try to affect anything in Mexico as such with respect to insolvency proceedings. What he said was, you may take advantage of what in, whatever insolvency proceedings or rights are available to you in Mexico. Uh, GMD simply never availed it, insofar as I'm aware, availed itself of that possibility. It also made clear that it went directly against the defendants and their, their privies, not uh, third parties. And that's been true under the Moreva injunctions as well. There's something called uh, Babanaft Proviso, which makes very clear that when a, a worldwide Moreva injunction is issued by an English court, uh, it's very limited so that it does not uh, uh, unwittingly or indeed intentionally affect proceedings in a foreign country. Mr. Daines, I'm a little concerned about your taking Erie out of the picture because you say they didn't mention it. But <laughs> then in the next case, I mean, we, we sit not for this case alone. I mean, uh, do you agree that the way the game would be played is what you look to see if rules are 64, 65 covers it, and if not, then you look to see what New York does, and then and that would be the end of it? Well, that's correct, uh, Justice Ginsburg. But I, the, the point I was making 
or should have made is that if one looks at this case and looks at every other case on this particular question of the power of federal judges to issue a freeze order, uh, one will look in vain in those cases as well for a discussion of Erie. The debate has been over Rule 65 versus Rule 64. That doesn't mean that this Court shouldn't get to the Erie issue, but we thought it was incumbent upon us to point out that there were some, uh, uh, shall we say, missing of uh, compliance with the rules of this Court on that, in that regard. But Rule 64 says you can, you can, it's a permissive rule, you can do what the State makes available. Yes. Rule 65, at least Mr. Mescon tells us, is a how-to rule. It doesn't say circumstances in which you can get yes. injunctive relief. Yes. Well, uh, uh, Mr. Mescon would, would have Rule 65 be viewed as an empty vessel. But as we've indicated, it is really the embodiment of the principles of equity that have been in effect for over 200 years. And in the eerie analysis, we would say uh, several things. First, uh, as we've indicated in our brief, uh, there is no conflict between federal law and New York law. Now, once again, this Court is going to have to resolve that issue because there's no guidance in the opinions of the lower court. But, but I thought Judge McLaughlin, who knows something about New York law, said New York law, you couldn't get this in New York. Well, Justice Ginsburg, as I under, uh, indicated earlier, I don't think that that particular comment can be read for the proposition that GMD uh, invokes it for. It simply does not go to that length. It's about Rule 64. It says nothing about what would happen under Rule 65. And, indeed, we've mentioned the Zangetti case, for example, under New York law. And it depends upon what level one wants to look at in interpreting New York law. And we have no definitive uh, decision in that respect in this case. But let me go beyond that and say that we think that Rule 65 does control here, that there is, if it's contrary to New York law, there's a direct collision. And Hannah versus Plumer says that under those circumstances. What, what particular provision of Rule 65 is it that you think is substantive rather than procedural? <coughs> well, Your Honor, I, uh, it is not a question of whether it says explicitly uh, that the rules of equity must apply. But what, as we've indicated in our brief, Rule 65 is a result of a development from I take it then 1789. There, I take it then there isn't anything in the rule that, that That is correct. This Court has not decided whether Rule 65 is procedural or substantive for eerie analysis. none of the rules could be. I beg your pardon? I thought none of the rules could be substantive because that didn't Congress say in the Rules Enabling Act you can't do things that affect substantive rights? Well, that is, that is correct, certainly, uh, Justice Ginsburg. But I think that what this Court has held is that when a matter is procedural, uh, then, and it's expressed in federal law, and there's a direct collision between this federal procedural rule and whatever the state rule may be, then the federal rule controls. Well, you, you would probably be willing to uh, hazard, uh, uh, this far at least, that uh, if, if the state in question under, under uh, Rule 64 did not permit injunctions at all, you could still get an injunction in federal court by reason of Rule 65. Well, in, in fact, Rule six, under 64, uh, sorry, yeah. yes, New York does permit injunctions, is what I'm saying. No, but I'm saying, if suppose the state did not, did not permit injunction at all, would yes. you be able to get an injunction in federal court by reason of Rule 65? I would say yes, Your Honor. I would think so. uh, because, as this Court has indicated, it tries to get, and Justice Gin, Ginsburg's uh, questions, I think, got to this point, what is the state interest? Well, we don't know what the state interest here, assuming that the, uh, the defendants are right, GMD is right about New York law. 
but I think that we've set out in our brief an indication that there are several layers of New York law, and, for example, where there's a showing of irreparable harm or uh, possibility of insolvency, New York's courts do allow for this type of injunctive relief. Uh, but we think that Rule 65 is directly in conflict with what uh, GMD asserts is the New York rule, and we think under those circumstances uh, it could be described as uh, — what, what, what do you think Rule 65 says substantively that is in conflict with the New York rule? What New York uh, — what, what Rule 65 says, and it has always been part of equity, is uh, when a party faces irreparable harm — and has no adequate remedy at law. Federal courts uh, remain this, open I, I, and available. Are you, you're not reading from the rule. No, I'm not. Uh, I just happen to write some notes here, Mr. Chief uh, Justice. Well, but, uh, I mean, is there some sentence in Rule 65 you can point to? That I, it, I cannot point to some sentence, but uh, I repeat, Mr. Chief Justice, that it has always been understand, understood to be a bedrock principle of federal equity that when a party is experiencing irreparable harm and has no adequate remedy at law, that equity will come to the, uh, the, the uh, support of that particular Well, litigant. you know, th that, that may be, but I think it would have to be derived from somewhere other than Rule 65. And it wouldn't include whatever. I mean, like, you know, uh, taking his mother hostage or something like that. E equity will come to his assistance within within the bounds of what equity has traditionally done. You're, you're, you're not saying whatever it takes, equity can do it. No, I'm not saying that, but well, I am that's saying — That's the issue before us. Uh, well, equity hasn't done this before. So is, is, this, uh, is this like taking your, your, your mother hostage? Uh, I, I certainly hope that's not the situation. No, I, uh, probably not. But, but even if Rule 65 were not directly on point, we think that this Court's uh, decisions — uh, in uh, Bird versus Blue Ridge Electric, and indeed the discussion in Gasparini points to the fact that there are essential characteristics of federal courts that need to be protected uh, even where the eerie analysis comes into play. And we think what we have here is not merely a response of a judge to the claim of a plaintiff who has no other alternatives. It is a response to the fact that what GMD basically said to the court was, you can do nothing. Catch me if you can, but you have no power to do that. So what we're talking about is a federal court's ability to be able to issue an effectual judgment. Now, this is a case where there was no defense on the merits, uh, where the, the defendant uh, simply had no reason to challenge what was going on. It filed counterclaims and then basically did not oppose the dismissal of the counterclaims. And we yes, think but that this wasn't, you know, catch me if you can. There's no contention here that, that there was fraud going on. They, they, they just wanted to do something that was convenient for the sake of their business. There, there was they no didn't want to do it simply in order to uh, avoid paying the judgment uh, that might ensue from this. They, they would have wanted to do it whether this uh, — whether this case was pending or not, wouldn't they? Well, I, I, but that's the agreed-upon state of, of, of matters. Justice Scalia, there is no explicit finding of mm -hmm. fraud here. But I think that, uh, as the Court of Appeals pointed out, uh, the district judge thought that what was going on was less than benign. It's used uh, in this opinion uh, uh, various characterizations, but it does talk about the duplicity of GMD and describe some of its conduct and arguments as particularly disingenuous. Now, we're not arguing that there has to be a showing of fraud. There are many ways in which 
a party such as the investors here can be injured, injured in a way that means that they will never, uh, in a real world, recover anything from a judge's claim where there is no defense to a breach of contract claim. And that's the situation that we have here. And so the question really, really becomes one of uh, whether federal courts can come to the rescue. Uh, May I ask just a technical question about this, what's, what's left here? We have yes. a permanent injunction yes. and the possibility of a suit uh, for damages against the bond. Is, is there an appeal bond still in existence? The appeal bond is still in existence. We have basically a final order on the underlying merits, namely the, the breach of contract claim. We have the permanent injunction, uh, which was not appealed by GMD, and we have something called a turnover order in which the district judge basically said, uh, the assets that you've been required to hold, now turn them over uh, to the defendants. I might point out that because GMD has made uh, many efforts to distinguish uh, your three cases in Deckard, uh, De Beers, and First National City, uh, I see them as prismatic cases because apparently courts and litigants have held them up in all kinds of ways and found different uh, sources of light coming from them. But, but basically, this was a suit seeking damages, but it was also a suit that sought uh, the establishment of a trust. So if one wants to, to make connections between this case and some of, this, uh, some of the earlier cases that have been at the center of this, uh, this debate, uh, certainly the fact that a trust was uh, requ- requested, it was denied by the district judge, and perhaps properly so, then we have an equitable claim. Thank you, Mr. Days. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Meskin, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, several short points. On the question of whether Mareva injunctions are a good idea or a bad idea, there's been a lot written that's referred to in the briefs. Uh, the question of how it would implicate our bankruptcy statutes, the question of how it would implicate the relationships between debtors and creditors, the uh, question of how it would implicate our relations with other nations are all important, interesting questions that suggest that Mareva injunctions would not be a good idea. But in any event, whether they are or whether they are not, it is for the Congress to decide whether or not that is an appropriate extension of the judicial power in the United States because the lower federal courts in this I country — I suppose the state legislature could make that decision. I mean, state legislatures could do that. Well, yes, Justice Stevens. Uh, Second, uh, the complaint in this case did not uh, request uh, any kind of uh, establishment of the trust. There was a motion made, a preliminary injunction motion, that called for the creation of trust, but that was not part of the permanent relief. And uh, finally, uh, Justice Breyer, if I could turn to your uh, question and and make my third attempt to try to answer it. I hope this will be helpful. Uh, First, in this case, there was no allegation of a fraudulent conveyance. I'd start by saying that. All of the uh, transfers were made in consideration of valid debts, frequently at a discount and so on. But I think the cases that Your Honor may be thinking of relate to those in which the plaintiff had some interest some traceable interest. I think the phrase in the old cases sometimes that is, you don't have follow to, the money. You did. I got picked that up. Okay, fine. You said you did answer the question, right. and it was helpful. Uh, and finally, with regard to the question of the merger of law and equity, it is correct. Cases like Steinbach and Gordon make clear that the merger of law and equity uh, have made no fundamental difference on the powers of this court acting as a court. Uh, if, if we ruled for you, would we necessarily be disavowing the Marcos case, or are there distinctions between the two so 
so that Marcus could stand and you could still prevail? Uh, I cannot find a principal distinction between our case and the Marcus case cries out for something because the facts are very bad and the facts here are much more favorable to, to our client which makes this a, a better case from our side of the table. But it's hard to think of a principled reason why the courts could do that. Uh, if there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Meskin. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>